You're listening to the weekly podcast with Pastor Steve McCoy from 360 Church in Sarasota, Florida. We hope this message inspires you to press beyond ordinary. A couple of weeks ago, our staff went to a luncheon with uh, uh, the guest speaker. It was uh, with one of our, our ministry partners, City Commit. And uh, they had a guest speaker. His name is Brian Sanders. Brian's been the pastor, was the pastor for many years at Tampa Underground Church. And they really have some very unique ways of reaching the community that we're looking at, examining. And I got to have a private meeting with Brian. I had a lot of questions for him uh, early in the morning. And he, would, he began to talk about meta skills. And I know that may be a new term for some of you, but meta skills are some, sometimes these um, intangible skills that are needed to be added to your core skill. So for example, you may be a, a carpenter, but a meta skill would be collaboration, that you collaborate with other fields or other subcontractors. So it's not that you just learn your skill, but there's these other skills, meta means above, these other skills that are really important to what you do to make your core skill even more amplified and better. So he was talking about one of these, um, these meta skills that in our culture today, that it's moving so quickly and that there that you've probably seen the statistics where people are changing their professions fairly quickly, where my dad, for example, worked at the same job for 40 years, round trip uh, every single day, 100 miles, same, same job, 40 years. That's kind of rare these days. It's rare to see an NFL football team stay together from one season to the next. You know, they're getting different contracts and this, that, and the other. And so when we look at that, we, we live in more of a, a sprinting culture. Things are moving and changing fast. So one of the meta skills was not just knowledge, but the ability to learn quickly. So if I go to a different job, I'm, I'm able to learn quickly. In fact, I, I, I read this article in this magazine, uh, appropriately called Fast Company, uh, and, and the quote says, few traditional career tactics train us for an era where the most important skill is the ability to acquire new skills. So when we look at the, our, our culture, I, I, and I did this in the first service, I'll do it this one. How many of you guys have a house, a home, apartment, condo, where you actually have a front porch on it? Front porch. Okay, so I'm looking at the room. Looks like maybe 10% of the room. How many of you guys who have a front porch would sit on your front porch? You ever sit on your front porch? Okay, even a little less. How many of you that sit on your, that have a front porch who sit on your front porch actually wave to your neighbors? Okay, even a few less. How many don't even like their neighbors? Okay, <laughs> this, this, I mean, why not? I grew up in a home. It was a fixer-upper. Uh, back in the day, you know, we would take family members in. And so I grew up at a home that was uh, built in 1922. Um, my grandmother had lost her husband, my granddad. And so we lived, my dad bought this house for $10,000. And uh, every day after work, after he had driven 100 miles, he came home and fixed it up until we could live there. My grandmother, um, my two uncles and uh, an aunt, lived on the upper floor and we lived on the bottom floor. 
we had a front porch. In fact, the house next to us had a front porch. In fact, everybody on our block had a front porch. In fact, there was not a house that didn't have a front porch. Our front porch had a swing. And we sat on the swing and we'd invite people actually onto our property, onto <laughs> Francis. And so we would invite them in and we'd say, invite them up to the porch, we'd sit there and we would actually do this really weird thing, we would talk. And we would drink iced tea and lemonade. And then even on, like when we did trick-or-treating, we went into the home. We had, you know, we had uh, hot apple cider and we didn't worry that it was poisoned. <laughs> it was such a weird culture. And so the effect that we have is that we have, as we know, particularly my generation and before, have moved to a, from a mom and pop to a box store mi mindset. If we went to Home Depot this afternoon, most likely if we bought a screwdriver, a hammer, or a duct tape, we wouldn't know the name outside of a name tag. We wouldn't know the name of the person checking us out. I knew the checkout person at our hardware store growing up. In fact, we knew the owner. We knew the owner of the Five of Dime store. We knew the owner and the, owner and the manager of the pharmacy. We knew the manager of the bank. That's what, this was our culture, and I didn't live in a town of 2,000 people. It was a bigger city, but that we were so localized, and it was a marathon mom-and-pop shop. So many times we, as Christ followers, would hope that we are impacting the culture around this, but the truth of the matter is, in addition to that, culture is also impacting us, not only as a body, but also individually. So we have turned sometimes our relationship with God from a mom and pop situation to a box store relationship with God. And we expect breakthroughs through the drive-through. That if we just spend a little bit of time with God, we have this expectation because in our culture, we have not only felt the effect of the, the box store, but we have also come to expect the speed of the box store culture. I have to wait four people deep in the line at Home Depot. I start to get a little fussy. Now we have express checkout. Now we have self-checkout, which confession, I love. I don't have to be relational. And then you think, what am I doing? So we have these expectations. You know, when I get like driving on the interstate and I get in the left lane and somebody is going under the speed limit in the left lane, it's a phenomenon. I become the most kindest, gentlest person. I begin to throw kisses at them. And, you know, as I'm driving, I'll drive on my knees so I can heart them, you know, just use hand language. Our expectation is you're in the fast lane, at least by minimum, break the law, right? We're gonna, we're gonna break the law here. We have a mobile app for our disciple making tools. And uh, we've just changed the technology because we kept getting so many complaints. This thing is taking 15 seconds to open. <laughs> Today, we're going to read a story that reminds us that God is never frantic. In fact, frantic and God, you know, the old saying is God's speed. When we would go, we're going to learn that God's speed is never frantic. And if we're going to have a 
deeper relationship with God, then we have to go the extra miles, plural, marathon, than just have a sprinting relationship. We find ourselves at a pivotal moment in history today in 1 Samuel chapter 10. If you have your Bible, some people like to follow along. And in this, in this intersection, we find something that's a little deeper, a little more complex than I would say that we can get into it on Sunday morning, but I'll try to nutshell it for us so we can all wrap our heads around it. There were very clear, distinctive roles in the, in the Old Testament. And, and if you were to say that th- what were the top three roles, we would see prophet, priest, and or king. And no one was to have all of those roles. No one should have had all of those roles. Because we were waiting in history for the Messiah who would be able to fulfill all of those roles, both prophet, both priest, and both king. And if the Messiah were going to be distinctive, then we wouldn't want to have a train of history where people would have, some people would have had all those roles. There would have been no distinction with, with Christ when he came. And there are different eras in the, in the Old Testament. There's the Canaanite era. There's the Mosaic era and the Moses era. And, the, and they have different, so it gets quite complicated. But at the heart of it, there's even something that is, I think, more essential. And here, here it is. In other cultures, even today, there are cultures where the, the, the leader is considered a supreme leader and seen, seen as divine. To be honest, this is what the culture is in North Korea, that the supreme leader is seen as divine, as having a divine position. God did not want a king to also be a priest because the other cultures around them saw their kings as divine, and God said there's only one king who's divine, and his name is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And they, and it, and so God was like, "There is this is you guys are not on that level. You are a human being, and you are not to not only be a divine seen as divine, but all, but you are to reserve that position. So there are some, you know, some very complicated ways. But at the essence." When we think about ourselves, because we're not, none of us are kings or anything like that, but when we think of ourselves, here's, here's what it is in, in just the nutshell form. We are not in the position of God. We are continually in need of God. But when things get tough and things get angular, we often say, let me take the wheel. And in those moments, they will be our worst moments that we experience. And this is what Saul what was happening. Saul was the first king of Israel. Now God had warned them, you don't want a king. I'm telling you, you don't want a king because up to that point, Israel was a theocracy, meaning God was their king. But they looked at other cultures and instead of impacting those other cultures, again, those cultures impacted them and they said, we'd like to have a king. And so they they, you know, they said, okay, God, we're going to ask you to show us the king. And so Saul, and then it went to his head and everything went down. So in this intersection that we're going to see, 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is in a quagmire. 
he had an army of six or, or 3,000, and his army began to flee, and he was down now to 600. So he was outnumbered. He was outmaneuvered because the enemy troops had begun to surround them. He was also out-equipped. They had run out of weapons. They didn't have any more spears. They didn't have any more shields. So he was outnumbered, outmaneuvered, and out-equipped. And in that moment, he, he said, okay, we need help. And this is where we pick up the story. The other figure in this story is Samuel, who was a prophet. And that was his, that was his position, the prophets. And then he played at times the role of priest, but never all three. And then we have Saul, who only had the role of king. Saul uh, was, had this intersection with Samuel the prophet, and Samuel the prophet said to Saul the king, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down. Not maybe come down, if it's convenient, I'll come down, but I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Okay, for us, that's for some of us, that may be foreign, but that was a way for them to say, okay, God, we're going to surrender ourselves to you, commit ourselves to you before we go on the battlefield, on the front, uh, on the home front, before we go to the front lines on the home front, we're going to consecrate ourselves, dedicate ourselves, and acknowledge that we're never going to win this thing without you. So that's what, that's what was going on. So I'll come down, but you must wait, Samuel said to Saul, for number one, seven days, number two, until I come to you, and number three, and I'll tell you what you're going to do. So there were three things, there were three components to, to this instruction. Wait seven days, wait till I get there, and wait till I tell you what to do. Pretty simple. But as we read the story, Saul was impatient. And, and he begins to say, let me take things in my, because he began to be desperate, and those are when we have our worst moments when we'll say, let me take it into my own hands. Watch what happens. A few chapters later, 1 Samuel 13, verse 10. As soon as, so, what, sorry, uh, uh, verse 8. So he waited seven days, but the, ti the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel wasn't there yet. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were starting to scatter. Now he's freaking out. Now I've lost my job. Now I've got a bad health report. Now I'm, I don't know how to, all the, the things that come into our life, his army was scattering. And so, uh, so, um, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he said, I'll take it from here. I'll offer, I will take on the role now of priest. And now I'll become both God and man. I'll be, I'll, I'll be in the role of the priest and the king. And because he was the first king, God said, wow, you are setting a precedence here that is, that is dismal, fatal, in fact. These are the moments that are dangerous for us. I'll tell you something today that I'm not going to tell you what it was but it's one of the worst mistakes I ever made in my life. And it was a moment at Gilgal. I was asking God for something, and I wasn't getting enough time. The God app wasn't opening fast enough for me. I was in the fast lane, and God was driving at God's speed, not Steve's speed. 
And back in the day, I know it's hard to believe, but we had phones that plugged into the wall. In fact, in my kitchen, I still have the plate where you hang a wall phone. I don't know what to do with it. Maybe like hang a gourd or a flower on it or hang a coat or something. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so I, I have this phone and I'm asking God, I'm asking God, I'm asking God. But he didn't answer according to my speed, which has been affected by the speed and the expectation around me in my culture. I took the phone, I ripped it out of the wall, and I threw it across the room and crashed it into the wall. And I said, I'll take it from here. Worst mistake I ever made in my life. I share that because we all have those moments. Now, maybe you haven't ripped the phone out. Yeah, try it. It's good therapy. It really feels good. I'm just kidding. We've all had those moments of desperation where we step into God's position and not wait. And every time, it's absolutely fatal. As soon as, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 10, as soon as he had finished the offering, offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Like, dang it, man, you should have waited five more minutes. Just five more minutes. Did you, did you have a timer? Well, not coming, apparently, because as soon as you did the offering, he came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Probably said, hey, praise the Lord, how's it going? And Samuel said, hey, what have you done? And so watch his justification. Well, when I saw the people scattering from me as soldiers, there was their fault. And the enemy, the Philistines, had mustered at Mishmash, which it was their fault. And I said, now the Philistines will come against who? Against me, because I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So watch. So I forced myself. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I had no choice. And God would say, so... You see, that's the sprints. Oh, I forced myself. It's closing in, and I got to do something right now. And Samuel responds, you know, almost like once he finishes this whole speech. Well, the people are scattering. You know, the, the enemy's closing in. You didn't show up on time. So I had to do this almost as if Samuel should have said, Oh, wow, I didn't know all that. Like, oh, well, had I known that, oh, I'm so sorry I even brought it up. Hey, has anybody got any red carpet? We'll just throw it out for, for Saul here. As if God would say, oh, man, I, I overlooked you know, the thing that's going on in your life. God never tuned out. He goes, I know it. I got the bigger picture here. And, what's, and then Saul, oh, Samuel says to Saul, hey, what you've done here is foolish. It's foolish. And so I'm looking at this, I'm, and I'm, I'm just reminded that the relationship that we have with God can never be forced. And we think that our hardest moments are like this at Gilgal, but my proposal for us this morning is it's what's leading, it's the miles leading up to Gilgal. That if, if Saul would have really known God, and really had that relationship with him. You know what he said? He'll be here. 
He'll be here. For many years, I, um, I uh, played piano for this guy who had sung on Broadway for a number of years. He was, he was just a great entertainer, and we did many, many things together. He was like a, he had the voice of a James Earl Jones, and he looked a little like James Earl Jones. And um, his name was Harry. And uh, I've done funerals with Harry and, and uh, uh, events with Harry, and Harry is always, was always running late. Literally to the time where it's like, you know, we go on stage in about 60 seconds, and Harry wasn't there. But miraculously, Harry would show up like within three seconds. And the people who were managing the concert or the funeral or the wedding, you know, they're, they're paid to be uptight. They're paid to worry, you know. The wedding coordinators, part of the job of wedding coordinators is to worry about everything and to make sure I, you know, I love when I go to a wedding and they have a wedding coordinator I'm like, hey, where's this beats me? There's a wedding coordinator and she's really worried about it. So don't don't worry. I, I don't worry because she's worrying. And they would come to us and, and like they're frantically, we had some people frantically pacing in the parking lot, where's Harry, where's Harry? And I was pacing the first two or three years until I knew him. And then I would say to the person worrying and pacing, oh, don't worry, he'll be here. How do I know? Because I know him. I know, he, I know, I know he's going to show up. Why? Because he's never not shown up. And so in this moment, the only way that we can deal with the Gilgals is the miles leading up to the Gilgals to spend enough marathon time with God to know that in our worst moments, listen, he may not fix the whole deal. All of a sudden, the armies didn't come running back, but we know that God will show up. We know that God will be there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Emmanuel, God with us that God is with us. And no matter what the deal happens at Gilgal, there is a God who is at all of our Gilgals. It's when we forget that, and we forget that because we haven't walked with them. Recently, I just keep thinking about farming. Not that I have any temptation to become a farmer since I <laughs> kill most living things. But I've been thinking about this, this concept, especially in, in, you know, I think a lot about disciple making. And you, we have proven that you can't rush farming. We thought that genetically modifying our produce was a good idea. We thought that injecting our chickens with steroids so they grew fast and really grew big was a good idea. But now we, we want to be steroid-free and GMO-free. And the relationship with God cannot be injected with steroids, neither can it be genetically modified. It's like farming. And if we plant a watermelon plant today, we can't expect a full, ripe, big watermelon like we see in the grocery store that we can go in and pick up so easily and so quickly. We can't expect it by next Thursday. Neither can we expect to grow and to really know God without this marathon. James chapter 5 says it this way. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. It's interesting. The theologian John Calvin wrestled with patience. 
In fact, he confessed these words. He says, I have not so great a struggle with my vices. He goes, I got vices, but if they're not big struggles, great and numerous as they are, as I have with the struggle of impatience. My efforts are not absolutely useless, yet I have never been able to conquer this ferocious wild beast of impatience. And he lived about 500 years or so ago. It's even more difficult to live now. I think this is difficult for us. It's challenging to walk a patient walk with God. When we look at the church culture, when we're doing, for example, a a training and disciple making, the very first thing we do is that we begin to look at everyday people and our patterns in, in, in our church culture. We look at what our willingness is to give back to God, what percentage of of American evangelicals are willing to give one out of 10 apples back to God. We look at uh, what percentage of American uh, evangelicals are willing to pour into another person's life and disciple making. The answer is 1%, by the way. The percentage of American evangelicals who are willing to share their faith on a regular basis. And so we look at these things, and one of those things is prayer. And people like George Barna and Pew Research tell us that the average number of minutes that that an evangelical spends in time with God in prayer, in isolated prayer, is two minutes. And And so I say to pastors, hey, before we start throwing rocks at somebody, the average number of minutes that a pastor prays is five minutes a day. So when we look at that predicament, I recognize that some of you may be like, hey, I I can relate to that. So I want to give you a challenge, and I'll I'll circle back to it. If this is a if this is a new thing for you, I want to give you a challenge that I'm going to call 30-30. It takes about 30 days to build a new habit. And I would challenge challenge us. And maybe for some of you, you're well past this, and hey, great, thank God for that. But if this is a growing thing for you, I'm going to challenge you for the next 30 days to spend 30, day, 30 minutes with God before, you know, if you want to do that late at night, you want to do it in the middle of the day, 30 minutes with God. That can be time in the Word of God. It can be praying and kind of a, whatever that is. Because listen, in our culture, in our Christian culture, we have little devotional books. Great. That's your, if that's your mix, go for it. I, I agree. But don't allow the length of the little devotion book to determine to be the rudder for your time with God. Does that make sense? In other words, it's tempting in a, in a soundbite box store culture to say, I've got this devotional book, you know, daily bread, those kinds of things, wonderful books, wonderful tools. God's have used them. Please don't send me any emails that I hate daily bread. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that when you see three little short paragraphs and you go through those little short paragraphs and we do the check and I've spent time with God, I'm just trying to shepherd and say, hey, that will not grow you to be prepared for your Gilgal or me either. I listen to audio books and I listen to them at at least a 1.5 speed and sometimes a two speed. (laughs) And sometimes I do that with God, and I have to check myself and saying, this is a farmer relationship. This is a marathon relationship. So I would love to hear from you guys. 
you know, a week from now, two weeks from now, like, hey, I'm, I'm doing that 30-30 challenge. And, uh, and man, it's really, you know, making an impact. Or, Steve, you're an idiot. It doesn't do anything for me. You, you, you let me know. Love that. When I look at this, I want to leave you a few, a few reasons that we should do this. Number one, God is a God of a marathon. All of us want to look more like God. And if we're rushed, we'll never look like God. If we're frantic and we're shallow in our relationship with him, we'll never look like him. When I look at Christ and the plan of Christ, it's fascinating. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, I want you to think of the longevity of God. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And I was reading that, I was thinking, man, you know, at the time of Noah, when everything was just falling apart to the place that God had to restart the whole world, wouldn't you think that in that moment, maybe God said, maybe this is the time I send Jesus. Violence has filled the earth, we're told, in the times of Noah. I mean, this is the time. I, 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 I say, hey, this is the time. Jesus, we, it's the time. But he might, no, it's not the right time yet. Maybe it was when Israel just went off the, 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 the chart and said, man, we're just disobeying. I've got to put you in Babylon. And maybe when they were trapped in Babylon and Assyria, that God would say, man, maybe this is the time. But even before Adam took his first breath, God said, Christ is in my heart. Christ is the plan for this humanity that I haven't even created yet. But I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. God is a long-range planner. To the point in Galatians chapter 4, we read this. But when the set time had fully come, listen, there is a set time as we look at these tra tragedies around the world, wars, rumors of war. When we look at what's happening in Israel, when you have Sudan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, all these things, there is a set time that God has when the trumpet is going to blow. And when Christ comes and he raptures and takes his church, and there's going to be an issue in the tribulation. But in that moment, I promise you that we're not going to bring peace on earth. And when peace on earth exists, then God's going to show up as a gentle lamb. He's going to show up as a lion. And that time is set. And then the reason that we know that our time is set and that we can deal with Gilgal is that the time for Christ's first coming was set. And when that time had fully come, as we see here, when the, when the set time is so, so critical, the time with Samuel and Saul, it was a set time. Wait seven days. I'll come. I'll come. I'll come. Harry's showing up because I know Harry. He won't be late. When the trumpet blows, it will not, from a musical point of view, for those musicians, it will not be one beat off. It'll be one, two, three, and a four, and a boom. And it's going to be right on time. How do we know that? Oh, because he showed up before. He won't be late. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is laying out some things to, to Timothy. He goes, be diligent, absorbed in these matters, not just shallow. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress, that you look like God. When people see you, going through your Gilgal, and they hear you say, oh, my God's going to show up. My God is with me. My God, 
you are painting a picture to a frantic world that needs to be seen. Number one, we want to look like God. Here's the second thing. If we expect to understand the deeper things of God, we will never do that in a two-minute sprint relationship. If we really want to know God, watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the deep things of God. Oh, wait. Oh, there are deep things of God. Yeah, there are deep things of God. For who among you knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So in other words, if we're going to know the the thoughts, the deeper thoughts of God, then we're going to have to know him. And the only way we can know him is that that active uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit within us. Take it back to farming. I can have the best John Deere tractor, but if it's sitting on my property not being used, then it's not going to, it can't activate and plow the ground. And so the same with us. Everybody that comes to Christ gets the same spirit. There's no discounted version of the spirit. You got more, I got less, I got more, you got less. We all have the spirit of God. But are we going to activate? Are we going to say, I want to know the deeper, I want to know you more deeply. My wife and I almost every single day take a 45-minute walk with no phones, no interruptions, no other conversation except us. You know why? Because I want to know her. It's not just that we live in the same house together. What kind of relationship would that be? Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 says, this is what the Lord says. Now watch the metaphors. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Hey, it takes a long time to get wisdom. I don't know a lot of four-year-olds with wisdom. It takes time to have wisdom. Or the strong man boasts of his strength. It takes a long time to look like this. Just kidding. It takes time to build muscles. Many of you like didn't get that. That's okay. <laughs> or the rich man boasts of his riches. Unless you just inherited this big chunk of money, we, you, know, you, you work a long time and work hard to get riches. So wisdom and strength and riches, these are things that take a long time. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me because that takes a long time like these other types of things. Here's the final reason. First of all, we want to look like God. Second of all, we want to know the deeper things of God. And finally, we can, we can expect zero fruit on our farm, no produce on our farm, unless we have nurtured it and toiled and, and really worked it. This is why Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man runs a marathon with me and remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, Saul, give it up. It's not going to happen. So in Galatians 6, we end with this, let us not grow weary of running this marathon. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. We're going to end our time today with a very touching and very real story. Many of you know our pastor of Hispanic ministries, Julio Machado. We met Julio um, back in, uh, oh gosh, years ago, five or six years ago. We were training in Cuba. It was our first time. We had trained in many locations. It was a tough, physically it was tough. And, um, and he, this was the last training. He said, can I meet with you? We had a team of seven. We sat in a circle. I'll never forget the tears running down his face. He said, teach me. We're not, we're not doing disciple making here. I want to learn. 
that ignited a, a relationship that has grown deep and and uh, he is a passion a passion for his own people in cuba and just began to spread disciple making and the tools that we have not only there in cuba but other countries in latin america he has an association with a, a, a seminary here in the United States in the Midwest. He came uh, right as COVID was getting going. He came to the United States and and um, and was doing some work there at the seminary. And then all the, the airports in Cuba were shut down. So in essence, he was trapped here alone. His family, his wife and his four children, three daughters and one son were stuck in Cuba, uh, apart from each other. One month led to another, one month led to another. The United States government gives concession for Cubans to be here one year and one day, and then you can go through the legal process of immigration and get a green, to, to, to get your green card. And so it had become so long, he said, hey, I'll, I'll just stay here and then I'll go through that process. Because the economy in Cuba was dismal and tanking, a uh, lot of details with that, even hard to find food. His family then decided, hey, we need to go to somewhere where we can survive. So believe it or not, they, they're, they're, they're countries, there are few countries that will accept citizens from Cuba. And uh, so Russia is one of them. They moved to Moscow. Not too long after that, Russia invades Ukraine. They didn't feel safe there. They didn't know what, what was going to happen in that environment. So they moved from there to Kyrgyzstan. The government then came to them, I think after 30 days or so, and said, your time is up here, you need to move. They moved from there to Uganda. They served everywhere they, they went, everywhere they just, they're igniters of ministry. And so they went to Uganda, out in the middle of nowhere, they served a children's school there. Uh, no air condition, no refrigerator, nothing. Very difficult for months. They moved from there then to Dubai, and they've been in D Dubai um, since that since that time. Julio finally, about a month ago, uh, was able to get a green card and uh, went through the whole legal process and talk about marathon. And then he, because he had a green card for the first time, family supported him to go to, to see his family uh, in Dubai for the first time in two years and seven months. Can you imagine? He came back to the United States and thought I'd want to get see if we can get my family here. And in just three weeks, they were able to come. And last Sunday was their first Sunday here at 360. So, I'd love to introduce uh, their family to our family because we're one family here. And so, uh, if you guys would just come on up, we'd love to. I want to show you. Would you give them a, a warm welcome? To, As they come, let me uh, let me introduce them. So on your right, of course, hey, uh, as you uh, as on your right, this is of course Julio. If you haven't met him and his wife Nelvis, 
This is Karen, and, uh, and beside Karen is Alvaro. Let me explain who Alvaro is. So this is Cecia. Cecia, um, uh, when they entered into the U.S., into the uh, Miami airport, uh, they were met with Alvaro. They've had a relationship, and he went down on his knee, and, uh, and, and now they are engaged. So... <laughs> So uh, this is Alro and Cecia, and this is Jemima, and um, and uh, this is Jonathan. John and I, Jonathan and I have played piano for one another. <laughs> Remember that? And uh, so we welcome you, and we we love you, and welcome to our family. These they love ministry so much. They have a servant's heart. Um, I rely especially on the girls for uh, translations. They just we have a trainer's manual where we train trainers. And uh, they, they translated it all, 260 pages of it. And they have just done tremendous work. We love you. We welcome you, not only to the United States, but to our family. And uh, we're so glad that you guys are here. And I'd like to pray if we would. Father, we're so grateful that you are a patient God. You're a, you're a marathon God. Thank you for not just being... a uh, for not being a sprinter. And every single person sitting here today in this room and every single person sitting in their home watching online, every single one of us could give testimony to the patience that you've exercised in our lives, even those Gilgal moments where we rip the phone out of the wall. And we look back on those moments, God, and you, you loved us and you showed up anyway. Remind us today, God, that it's the miles leading to the Galgal that are important, that when we get into those difficult situations, have, if our relationship is only shallow, then we're going we're gonna to turn to our own efforts, our own muscle, our own intelligence, our own articulation, and take the wheel, and we're going to blow it. God, if we do that. So I pray, God, for this church family. I pray for the 30-30 challenge for those that would take it, 30 days, 30 minutes a day. If that means we have to skip breakfast or skip our exercise or go to bed earlier and get up earlier or whatever that is, God, we pray that we'll dig deep and be a marathon runner. Father, we thank you for those who have come today in this building or again they're watching at home or they're taking a, a run they're listening they're driving they're sitting in their car and in this moment we recognize god that you had a plan before adam took his first breath a rescue plan jesus that you waited at the right exact moment and you sent a savior to the world god because you recognize that we're all sinners, we're broken, in need of a Savior. And for some, that deeply resonates with them, perhaps even unexpectedly. We recognize, God, that you're revealing to us our need of you. For some people sitting here or listening, watching, God, you're revealing their, their need for you. And maybe as we're in this time of prayer, maybe that's you. And maybe you would say, to yourself, in the most inner part of yourself, I need God. I need a Savior. And if that is you, 
This is God revealing himself to you. This is not some new idea that you humanly came up with. This is God revealing himself to you. And he is offering you an invitation. Come, come to me. Don't trust in religion. Don't trust in in leaders. Don't don't put your trust in, in trying to be good enough so that you think you can please me. But trust in what I've done for you. Trust that I've given a Savior who died on a cross to pour out his life and pour out his blood as the perfect Lamb of God so that you can come and trust in Christ and hear those words reverberate within you. It is finished. Your search is finished. You have found God. Wouldn't that be something that you sense God leading you to? And if it is, Listen, transfer your life right now. What do I mean? Transfer your trust, whatever you're trusting in, because we're all trusting in something. Transfer your trust from that thing or those things to Christ alone. Speak to him in your heart right now. I trust in Christ alone. Acknowledge your need for him. God, I am a sinner. I'm imperfect. And I need Jesus as a savior my Savior. Is that your prayer? Is that your prayer? It almost seems so simple that we trip over it. I need a Savior, God, and I trust in Christ alone. And I transfer my life. I turn it in. I exchange my life, God, and I'm asking you to breathe in me a new life. Is that your prayer? Thank you for being a faithful God. Finally, we pray for this beautiful family that you know by name, Julio, Novus, Karen, Jemima, Ceci, and Alvaro, and Jonathan. Thank you that you've brought them here safely, put their hands to the plow of ministry. Pray for their transition. Pray for all the details. But pray, God, they will continue to run this marathon for you. We love you, God. We worship you. We thank you for being a God of all ages, including ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. And special thanks for those of you who give generously to make this ministry possible. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can also subscribe or share it with your friends. For more information about 360 Church, visit us at the360church.com.